Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of this year's talk about the Ig Nobel Prize winners. If you haven't heard part one, you can go back and check that one out first. Uh, long story short, we're talking about the Ig Nobel Prizes again this year. Uh, we're not going to cover every prize, but just pick out a few of the highlights that we wanted to discuss. And Rob, I think you're going to kick us off today with the Biology Prize, if I'm not wrong. Yes, this is the Biology Prize. It went to Suzanne Schatz, Robert Eklund, and Joost von der Weyze uh, for analyzing variations in purring, chirping, chattering, trilling, tweeting, murmuring, meowing, moaning, squeaking, hissing, yowling, howling, growling, and other modes of cat-human communication. Those are all cat-human communication. Yeah, yeah. So this is so one the couple of questions I tend to ask myself about any Ig Nobel Prize winning uh, study or paper or write up is first of all why is it funny and then then secondly why is it important why does it matter and of course it's pretty obvious why this one is funny it's cats anything cats do has the potential to be hilarious because they are they are amusing they are our uh, our strange fur babies, our, our, the weird desert goblins that live in so many of our houses or haunt our yards. I think in many ways, cats are funny almost exactly to the extent that they appear to take themselves very seriously. Yeah, well, they, that's true. But there are also some very silly looking cats. But yeah, they, they do often have this kind of serious demeanor and they... Uh, it, it's easy to, for us to apply human motivations to their behavior and thinking, oh, well, they're they're covering for a mistake here. Or they're 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 trying to, uh, you know, uphold their dignity. Uh, it, it, there's a lot we can read into the behaviors of cats, uh, but the the actual scenario with cat. I mean, any human domestication of another animal species is inherently interesting. But the, the cat model. Uh, it, maybe one of the most interesting of all because it is this kind of uh, at, at times arguably a a self domestication it's this uh, this interesting um you know uh, balance that is struck between what the cat wants and what the human wants mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and you know so many of us live that every day that that uneasy truce with the feline kind you're always wondering if your cat really respects you this is less a problem for dog owners Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I never wonder. I, I know my cat doesn't respect me. It's but uh, but we'll we'll get into that. So uh, the, this this uh, this study, or actually, it's really a, a series of studies. Um, you know, they they deal with the vocalization of cats. And uh, if, if you're not that familiar with cats, if you're not around them much, uh, you might be surprised by this because cats are often pretty quiet. Um, they can be very quiet, very stealthy. And while the, the meow is the most famous cat noise and one that is uh, sometimes treated as kind of, a, kind of a monolithic vocalization, there's actually quite a diversity to the sounds you're liable to hear come out of a cat if you listen enough. Mm. So uh, everyone, everyone's cat is different. I mean, cats have, have, uh, can have amazingly uh, uh, different personalities. But concerning my own current cat, Mochi, uh, here are some of her most common utterances. Uh, so I thought I might mention these before getting into uh, some of the, the researchers' findings. So first of all, uh, there's, there is, of course, purring. Uh, Mochi will do this while seated close to or on a human, uh, you know, whilst relaxing. There's also uh, the hiss. Uh, she will generally, she'll hiss in other situations, like if she's surprised or something, but 
strangely enough, she most commonly hisses after she has uh, just randomly attacked my foot. She'll um, be near my foot. She will like play bite my toe, and then she will recoil and hiss at me like I did something. One of my most vivid memories of a cat hissing is uh, when I was in college, a friend of mine called me to come over and help deal with an, an incredibly large spider discovered uh, in the apartment. Mm-hmm. And the cat in the apartment there was just was just hissing at it, just violently hissing at a, at a huge black spider. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, again, so cats are so, so different and they have such, such uh, interesting personalities. I don't think I've ever heard my cat hiss at a, a non-human entity, but then again, she's, she's an indoor cat and it's kind of cut off from uh, most non-human entities. My cat Mochi will also do something that we affectionately refer to as the midnight baby parade. Sometimes not affectionately depending on uh, the circumstances, but this is when she carries a toy or small stuffed animal around the house. Generally after we've all gone to bed and does a kind of repetitive mournful howling about it. Huh? About like something about the, the toy has made her sad. No, um, based on uh, some of the readings I'll get into, um, I, I believe it is a communication aimed at us, at us humans, uh, saying, "Hey, I have I have caught you something. I have provide I have a treat for you, or and or I'm teaching you how to hunt, something to that effect." Hmm. So, um, so it's not actually mournful. That's just uh, our read of it. It sounds kind of weird and pathetic, but um, I see it is. Uh, it, but it is a, a vocal communication of sorts. Finally, uh, Mochi will use what I think of as the bossy meow, a kind of sharp, truncated meow that feels bossy and is often administered when she is ready to be fed and we're being too slow about it. Oh, from Charlie in that same situation, we get the huffs. Where oh, yeah? He, he doesn't fully bark, but it's the... <sighs> 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really remarkable when you, when you think about it. You know, all these, these various communications that are going on between us and these these non-human beings in our homes. Now, there are probably some other sounds from Mochi that I'm forgetting, and there are still others that our old cat would make, such as the the chirping at birds, which I'll definitely get into. Uh, but those are the main ones that are in my life that that I carried into reading about this research. And and again, one of the, the crazy things about all this is that we can we can anthropomorphize our cats all day, but we're left with a, with very real questions regarding what these sounds are and what purpose they serve. And on top of that, we're looking at it within the context of domesticated cohabitation with human beings. Right. So are these sounds that are naturally part of the uh, part of the cat's behavioral repertoire in their ancestral environment, or do they somehow emerge from being domesticated and being partnered with humans? Yeah, yeah. So it gets it gets very complicated. So um, the lead author on I think all what five studies that were referenced uh, in the the Ig Nobel Prize uh, being awarded here, the lead author on all of them was Suzanne Schatz. And uh, if you're interested in Schatz's work, uh, she actually has a book aimed at general readers and cat owners titled "The Secret Language of Cats." Um, yeah, and uh, I actually picked this up and kind of focused on this more than the the individual studies. Uh, in it, she details 17 different cat sounds. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but it's fascinating how these include sounds that are targeted at, seemingly targeted at prey, but also targeted at other cats and targeted at humans. <laughs> Which ones are we closer to? Do the, when they're talking to humans, is it more like their interactions with prey or more like other cats? It seems to be like other cats, and I've I've read other research that that 
that summarizes it, you know, in the same way, saying like, well, your cat basically thinks of you as a giant cat or your cat basically thinks of you as a giant kitten, that sort of thing. Hmm. So uh, just rolling through some of the sounds here and what Schatz has to say about them. Uh, For instance, purring uh, is complex because while it is largely associated with with the cat feeling content, uh, it can also mean that the cat is hungry, that it is pain, that the cat is anxious, or that the cat is giving birth or dying. Oh, wow. Well, that's a range. Yeah. So she writes that uh, purring probably would translate in, in human language, and she, she does a lot of this, like, like, if you were to translate this into human language, what is the cat saying? It probably means something like, I am no threat, or please leave everything as it is, or keep doing Oh, I can see that. Okay, so whether the cat is happy with what's going on right now and doesn't want to be disturbed or is in a vulnerable state of some kind and doesn't want to be disturbed, it's basically just kind of like, hey, things are fine. Yeah. Now, I've heard that tidbit about the dying before, and I was was having to think back where I'd heard it. And I think I actually heard about it the first time in a poem uh, titled Purring by Coleman Barks, who... uh, uh, incidentally, I think we've brought up on the podcast before because in addition to being uh, a, a poet of his own work, he is also uh, the, uh, the the Rumi interpreter who is sometimes criticized for not being an actual translator in the true sense of the word. He neither reads nor writes Persian, but rather sort of rephrases the poems of Rumi um, as English language poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the poem in question is, is rather good and has nothing to do with the, the poetry of, of, of Rumi or, or Persia. Uh, it's all about cat purring, and this is the, the key part. Quote, Here is something I have never heard. A feline purrs in two conditions, when deeply content and when mortally wounded, to calm themselves, readying for the death opening. Ooh, that's kind of chilling. Yeah. I've always found this part of the poem very spot on regarding cats and death because I feel like Mochi, uh, if she gets too cold or if she has some sort of health flare up, she basically says to us, I must now settle down and await the death opening. <laughs> and we're usually like, no, there's no, there's no reason to just accept death. You should, maybe you should drink some water instead. You're probably dehydrated. And she's like, no, I would prefer death. Oh, yeah, yeah. So is, is that in general that cats uh, are likely to have kind of strange relationships with water or is that more specifically your cat? I mean, I've heard that, you know, if you if you look back to where cats come to us from, that, you know, they have ties to desert environments uh, where they, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have access to a lot of water. But you spend any amount of time on the internet and you see that the cats are kind of all over the place. There are cats that habitually drink water from faucets and toilets. You know, <laughs> there are cats that, that actually use their fountains. Uh, and they're, then there are households like ours where I feel like we have, we put out various fountains and, um, uh, and bowls of water as kind of a spiritual offering so that the idea of water is present. Uh, so in the end, uh, she gets, I think, all of her moisture through her wet food, and uh, otherwise I think she would just dry up. Wow, that's strange. Now, when it comes to the meows, uh, Schatz points out that uh, meows are very often about getting the attention of humans, and there are really a whole suite of meows. Uh, for instance, there's the mew which is a very high-pitched meow, probably generally something that translates as a call to attention or help. And then outside of cat-human relations, this is also the sound a kitten makes to its mother. So this is a situation where we're, we're kind of a giant cat mother to our cats, at least in some circumstances. Oh, you could almost look at that as a kind of counterpoint to the purring. So if the purring is 
could sort of be understood as an expression of no need to change what's going on. Uh, the meow could be a sort of request for change. Yeah. The squeak, however, is like a shorter, truncated version of this. And I, th- I think this is what Mochi is doing when she is demanding to, to be fed. Uh, so um, so it's, it's not just a, a general call for attention or help, but a specific one. Like, hey, I am standing next to the food bowl and there is no food. Now, as for the hiss, uh, it still confounds me because uh, in Schatz's writing here, she mostly writes that it is exactly what it sounds like, a warning that says, enough, do not come any closer or I will attack you. But again, Mochi regularly does this to me after she bites me, uh, and and I should stress, after I do not retaliate, it's not like I I come at her at that point and then she has to hiss at me, Mm -hmm. I'm just standing there dumbfounded the whole time. Uh, but but who knows? Uh, uh, it's also a situation where sometimes they hiss when they're startled. Um, I think there are a lot of videos online of cats hissing at cucumbers that have been secreted behind them, that sort of thing. Oh, no. <laughs> now, the, the chirp and the chatter, this, this is where it gets really interesting. Now, this is something I don't see Mochi doing much, but uh, I had a former cat named Biscuit who would do this a lot while watching birds. Um, I think if you've certainly a lot of cat owners out there, people that have been around cats, especially indoor cats, can relate to this. You know, your cat is watching birds or maybe even uh, some rodents outside the window, and they're very, like, drawn into it. They're, they're, they're enticed by it. They're kind of hypnotized by the display. And then they kind of, they kind of go, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha, or a chirp kind of a sound, and kind of, huh. kind of like moving their mouths in a weird way. And it does seem like it's almost like they're trying to talk to the bird. I don't know if I've ever, uh, ever seen this happen. It's very interesting. Uh, and now Schatz describes them as, as quote, uh, these sounds as, quote, a hunting instinct where the cat attempts to imitate the calls of the prey or the killing bite. For example, when a bird or an insect catches the attention of the cat. Wow, I, I feel like I need to look up video of this. Yeah, it's uh, either interpretation I find interesting because, first of all, the idea that your cat is sort of trying to speak to the prey or to sound like it. Yeah, in it, you know, trying to speak to it in its own tongue, like that's inherently weird and interesting. But also this idea that like they're literally chomping at the bit to deliver a killing bite to the neck of that organism out there. It's like, oh, I can't get to you, but if I could, oh, I would just right into your neck. Okay, Rob, I take it back. I was totally wrong. I I just looked up a video of the chattering, and I have seen this before. For mm. some reason, I just didn't connect to what you were saying. Yes, the the ch- well, it's like the chattering cinnabite almost. It just yeah, the, the the teeth going up and down, and the the little noise there. I have seen this, and and it is it is quite strange. I never knew what to make of it. Uh, this is this is what um, uh, Schatz also adds uh, in her book. Quote, a cat who sees an unreachable bird chatters and imitates a killing bite in a stereotypical way. The action could serve as a means of stress relief. Some cats also chatter as a means of protest. For example, when they feel they have been mistreated by their humans or when they are annoyed. It's kind of like punching the air. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, oh, I want to eat you and I can't expression. Um, yeah. Which, again, especially makes sense for indoor cats who are looking out through the glass at a delicious bird. So anyway, uh, if, if you want to dive deeper into uh, in the actual research, again, the, the Ig Nobel Prize website has links to, uh, to all of these, uh, all five of these studies that are mentioned in the awards. But uh, I have to say, The Secret Language of Cats is, is a very interesting book, very readable. And it's not just about, like, you know, 
uh, direct one-to-one sort of, uh, you know, translations. It's about, like, what are these strange creatures that we live with? Um, you know, how are we supposed to think about them? Uh, and uh, and she also shares some like personal experience with cats, um, uh, you know, about uh, you know her desire to have a cat as a child and how she didn't get to have one, but then later I believe as an adult, uh, that's when cats actually entered her life and her home, and uh, and it ended up being a part of her work. Bravo. All right, Joe. What uh, what do you have for us next? Well, I figured I, since in the last episode I talked about uh, people slamming their faces into each other while colliding on a on a sidewalk, I should continue the face slamming theme and uh, and talk about the Peace Prize for 2021, which was given to Ethan Becerra, Stephen Nailway, and David Carrier, quote, for testing the hypothesis that humans evolved beards to protect themselves from punches to the face. Uh, this is fun because we've we've discussed David Carrier's research on the show before, uh, not only related to beards, but to uh, particularly remember the evolution of human fists and the possible connection to punching. Right. So, yeah, C- Carrier's got – this research is part of an arc, uh, mm-hmm. and we've talked about other parts of this arc on the show before. Um, so David Carrier is a University of Utah biologist, and one of his big projects, it seems, for a few years is the pursuit of a broader theory of human evolution that places a big emphasis on punching people in the face. <laughs> uh, basically, the idea that much of the way that human bodies are today uh, was a result of pressure that arose from male fist fighting and punching to the jaw. So before the beard thing, yeah, you mentioned there was uh, he did a study about human hands and tried to argue that the, the the current shape of the human hand could be an adaptation for better fist fighting. Um, I think the more common understanding is that the primary evolutionary pressure on the morphology of the human hand is that it was built for dexterity, for gripping and manipulating objects and, and little fine motor tasks. Right, um, but I, th- I think a lot of uh, Carrier's research, if I remember it correctly, in this is that it's also getting into the fact that yes, you need to do all that stuff, but you also need to be able to deliver a punch without robbing yourself of the ability to use that fine dexterity later. Right. Yeah. So in in support of his broader argument, Carrier has done experiments to show uh, back with the example of the hand. He did some uh, research showing that the shape of the human hand allows for the formation of a tight fist. I think it's the the form that he calls the buttressed fist, where the the thumb is curled under to protect the fingers and tuck them into the palm. Um, And this allows the fist to serve as a club, which can deliver heavy blows with reduced risk of injury to the hand, as compared to a more open-handed punch where the fingers and the thumb are not curled tightly like that. And so I, I want to say this may be true that uh, the human hand happens to be good at forming a fist, and I have no reason to doubt their findings that that can uh, help deliver blows with reduced risk of injury to the hand, though I still think it wouldn't necessarily prove that punching behaviors were uh, were the main or even a major part of what the hand evolved for. Because, uh, I mean, if you want to think about uh, analogies, see if the same logic holds up. Um, you could find that certain characteristics of the human skull help protect the brain during headbutting, but that wouldn't necessarily prove that the need to deliver headbutts was a decisive factor in shaping how human skulls are today. 
Uh, so in the past, uh, along these lines, I think I, I've expressed some skepticism about the idea of, of uh, carriers uh, – punching focused view of human evolution uh, i i certainly don't want to be dismissive i just uh, i just feel a lot of doubts uh, like it, it raises a lot of questions for me one uh, i was trying to find maybe he's addressed this somewhere but i was trying to find if there's actually even any evidence that closed fist punching is a natural instinctual behavior in humans as opposed to a relatively rare modern convention that has to be learned and enforced by social norms uh, because like you, you can go, if you read, um, you know, like boxing coaches and people say, you know, they talk about how you like have to learn how to make a, the right kind of fist. And if you don't, you could injure your hand. Uh, so that's not something that people just do by instinct. It's something that has to be taught. Mm. Uh, but, but maybe that has been addressed somewhere. And I want to be fair, but I also just think about how like, you know, you can obviously do even more damage in a fight with less risk of injury to yourself by holding a stick or a rock in your hand. Uh, than by punching with a closed fist. Um, but, it, you know, all of those questions aside, I would, of course, remain open-minded to, to good evidence uh, in this vein, even though I got my doubts. So uh, in this study, the authors extend the, the fist-punch morphology question to beards. And the question here would be, why do human males tend to grow beards? Um so the evolutionary pressures driving sexual dimorphism in facial hair uh, are still up for debate. So th this is not in any way considered a settled question. They're, you know, it's a perfectly good arena for people to uh, to advance different hypotheses and try to test them. I think the main hypotheses in this uh, area in the past have been based on social signaling, right? That beards exist primarily to make some kind of impression on other people in the minds of other humans rather than to serve uh, any kind of mechanical function. So maybe beards are supposed to make you more sexually attractive, though there is some doubt about that one because I think modern studies do not find that women consistently uh, find beards more attractive. Uh, the prevalence of preferences for beards among heterosexual women tends to be dependent on a lot of factors on social context. Like, for example, one thing I recall reading at some point um, was that uh, average female preferences for facial hair in men tend to follow what's known as a negative frequency dependence model. So that basically if if your society has more people with beards – more people will find clean-shaven men attractive, and if more people are clean-shaven, more people will find bearded men attractive. Hmm. So it's just whatever's less common. <laughs> Within reason, though, right? Because you don't want to be too much of an outlier. Um, uh, you know, oh, right. I think we can all <laughs> yeah. imagine various facial hair choices that are either you know just, uh, just, just too problematic or just too strange. Like if you're yeah. just going to decide to grow like uh, two... Uh, like two globs of hair on either side, on either cheek. Uh, you know, one cut in the shape of the planet Saturn, and the other cut in the shape of uh, <laughs> of Jupiter. Like that would that would be kind of strange. I don't know if anyone would really go for that. Robert, I am finding you incredibly closed minded about cosmic beard sculpting. <laughs> But anyway, okay, so it's, it seems like maybe maybe sexual attraction is not the best uh, signaling hypothesis. Another possibility is that beards evolved for intrasexual competition among males. Maybe they're supposed to make you look more formidable and dominant and encourage respect and deference. So uh, they're, they're supposed to encourage people to think, you know, I am no mere boy. Look at my beard. I am a wise and powerful, full-grown man. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. But it's still an open question. People don't know why beards evolved. 
But this research from 2020 argues as follows. They say, quote, We hypothesize that beards protect the skin and bones of the face when human males fight by absorbing and dispersing the energy of a blunt impact. Um, so, okay. So the, the points the authors make are, uh, they say, you know, there are other cases where hair appears to serve some kind of defensive function. Uh, for example, the long hair of a lion's mane is sometimes thought by biologists to have evolved to protect vulnerable spots like the throat and the jaw from damage during violent encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they point out, quote, the mandible, meaning the the jaw, the lower jaw, uh, which is superficially covered by the beard, is one of the most commonly fractured facial bones in interpersonal violence. So they went on to perform some physical tests. They, they ran tests to simulate the extent to which a beard would protect a jaw from blunt trauma. And so they described their method as follows, quote, We tested this hypothesis by measuring impact force and energy absorbed by a fiber epoxy composite, which served as a bone analog when it was covered with skin that had thick hair, referred to here as furred, versus skin with no hair, referred to here as sheared and plucked. We covered the epoxy composite with segments of skin dissected from domestic sheep and used a drop weight impact tester affixed with a load cell to collect force versus time data. Tissue samples were prepared in three conditions, furred, plucked, and sheared. Okay, so they do this experiment, and what do they find? Well, in fact, they find that simulated jaws covered in fur were indeed able to absorb more energy than the ones that were plucked or sheared. Uh, They say that peak force was 16% greater in the plucked versus the furred conditions, and total force was 37% greater. So what's the difference there? Well, they say that fur provides some degree of padding. It increases the time over which the blow is absorbed. And uh, finally, they say, quote, these data support the hypothesis that human beards protect vulnerable regions of the facial skeleton from damaging strikes. So I feel like uh, I I thought this was uh, this was interesting. I'm still kind of doubtful about the overall theory. Um, just uh, for example, using my analogy from earlier. And by the way, I mean I, the researchers are aware of this. You know, they say like that many of these traits could have evolved for other reasons, but they're trying to build a cumulative case that sees uh, fist fighting and and male physical aggression as a major th- factor shaping human morphology. Uh, so I guess I have some doubts that it it's as big as they might be suggesting, but I don't know. Um, but to use the analogy from earlier, it could be true that a beard makes it slightly easier to absorb punches to the jaw. And it looks like based on their experiment, that probably is to, to some degree true, at least slightly true. And yet that still wouldn't necessarily prove that the need to shield against punches to the jaw is the primary reason our species has beards. This would be an interesting one to hear from our uh, our various martial arts listeners about because uh, the, the 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 direction my mind goes in on this is I instantly think about uh, the the world of like mixed martial arts which today is like this this highly um, uh, you know high, it, it's a it's a top you know sport it's it's a situation where people devote their lives to reaching like peak uh, skill peak conditioning and it becomes like a uh, you know, it comes a game of degrees, right? Like what, what, whatever, you know, little thing you can do to give you an edge, it seems like you would do that thing, including grow a beard. Uh, and yet, when you look at at mixed martial artists, yes, some have beards, some have, have I guess, pretty robust beards, 
but you don't see like a universal shift to beards like mm-hmm. you might see in say um uh, you know, so certain evolutionary uh, situations, but also in certain warfare situations where there's some sort of a design, uh, some sort of an adaptation that gives a clear advantage, and then it becomes ubiquitous. Yeah, um, suddenly everyone who can adopt it does. Yeah. So that's that's where my main question would be. But but then again, I have to remind myself that by virtue of being this kind of over-engineered interpersonal um, combat sport, perhaps like it's gone beyond the level at which a beard could be at all helpful. Like it just doesn't matter. Uh, maybe like, maybe like a beard adaptation evolutionarily, you're dealing with, with something less than uh, you know, a, a punch that, it, or a, or a kick or what have you that has like, uh, you know, decades of training behind it uh, aimed at just this one thing. Yeah. I, another thing that, that I'm just curious about is, is there any kind of evidence that if you, actually go back a million years or so that our ancestors would have been practicing a lot of consistent closed fist punching or is that a more modern convention of human culture yeah and then once you start using weapons um you know it, i think you you quickly reach a point where the technology vastly outweighs any kind of natural armoring we might have via beards. You know, once you get to like mm-hmm. to the level of the mace, like we discussed before, I mean, that's just instant skull pudding, unless there's some sort of a helmet involved. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of hair you have or what kind of beard you're packing. But I guess the counter argument there is once you're to the point where you have maces, um, any kind of uh, selection uh, that would have been uh, involved would have already taken place. So Yeah, of course, that'd be among anatomically modern humans yeah Mm -hmm. well anyway though i I do want to come back and say despite the fact that i am uh i I still feel some some pretty strong doubts and skepticism about the 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 fist punch theory overall uh, i do appreciate the research because of course it's always good to explore alternative explanations Uh, maybe they will pan out maybe a lot of more research will pile up in these columns um, and, uh, and then of course, also the actual physical findings of the experiment, like showing the force absorbing properties of hair or fur, uh, could be useful to future researchers, even if the fist punch hypothesis itself, uh, eventually turns out to be universally ruled incorrect. Absolutely. All right. For our final selection here, I thought we might talk about the winner of the transportation prize and this went to robin radcliffe et al uh, for determining by experiment whether it is safer to transport an airborne rhinoceros upside down okay this is a good one yeah yeah this this was this so this one puzzled me at first because yes there's something about an upside down rhino suspended from a helicopter that is initially funny but then I struggled to explain why it was initially funny. I guess it's just maybe because the rhino is such a grounded animal and the idea of it being upside down in the sky is, is, is worth a giggle. Uh-huh. I guess so. So uh, just to go ahead and, and, and get this part out there, like this concerns conservation efforts in Namibia, in Africa. Um, and uh, the, the, res- the, the various researchers were tied to uh, Namibia, South Africa, Tanzania, uh, Zimbabwe, Brazil, uh, the UK, and the USA. Um, and it has to do, quite simply, with moving, uh, with translocation, moving uh, one rhinoceros from here to there, from one point to another. How do you do that? 
and what is the best way to do that, not only for the humans doing the moving, but also the technology involved and the animal itself. What is the least stressful method of carrying this out? Okay, so as somebody with no expertise at all in this area, my mind immediately goes to scenes from Jurassic Park where they're transporting dinosaurs in what look like giant uh, giant metal shoe boxes with air holes in them. Right, and uh, and apparently that used to be the way. That was just how you moved a large animal like a rhino around. You would trank it, and then as it woke up, uh, you would groggily sort of push it into a crate and then you would close up the crate, and then you could transport that crate, generally by truck, uh, to wherever you needed to take it. But you could, of course, also airlift that crate um, via helicopter or something, you know, loaded into a, a cargo plane, uh, something of, of that nature. Okay. So uh, the, the paper here in question uh, is titled The Pulmonary and Metabolic Effects of Suspension by the Feet Compared with Lateral Recumbency in Immobilized Black Rhinoceros Captured by Aerial Darting. Um, and uh, this came out in 2021 in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases. Now, the paper itself here is pretty technical, getting into a, you know, a, a, a lot. Basically, it, it focuses a lot on the, the breathing of the rhinoceros. But I found a lot of wonderful clarity on the topic in a uh, Manga Bay article by uh, Malavika Viawahare, in which the author interviews Robin Radcliffe, um, the, the lead author and one of the key researchers involved in this award-winning paper. So essentially what happened here is the researchers were asked to weigh in on a new practice of translocating rhinos that was being pioneered by um, animal relocation efforts in Namibia. And Cornell University veterinarian Robin Radcliffe is a rhino expert, so he's exactly the right person to bring in on this question. Okay. So, uh, like we, we just mentioned, yeah, the crate was the, the old way of doing it. And uh, interestingly enough, I was looking for pictures of rhinos and crates, and one of the top things that came up was a, a matchbox toy set that features a, a toy rhino, a toy crate, and then a helicopter for lifting said crate off the ground. Wait, is the helicopter powered? Uh, no, I think it's just like a matchbox thing. Oh, uh, okay. But, you know, this is the use your imagination. Uh, it looks it's a fun kit. You know, I was not a, a matchbox kid. I'm generally, you know, in uh, my, my household, so my son's not super into vehicles. But, like, this toy tells a story. Here's the helicopter. Here's the here's the um, uh, the crate. Here is the rhino. Fly the rhino to safety. Says the Matchbox uh, label. Wait, Rob. I think maybe the the uh, blades do spin. It looks like it's got a handle on the top of the rotor, and you, I think it's one of those where you can like spin it by manual force. Either maybe you uh, spin it with just by spinning it with your hand, or you 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 pull a cord or something. Okay. Yeah. It looks like you do get some spinning action. It's not going to fly. By itself, it's not a drone, but, <laughs> uh, but it, it does look fun. Um, but I think the toy here relays some of the challenges involved in this method. So you know, you look at it. Okay, you have a huge helicopter, or uh, you know, you can imagine if it was just using a truck, you'd still need a pretty sizable truck. It's a pretty right. huge crate. It's a pretty huge animal. Uh, and if you're transporting the rhino by truck, then you need roads to take you where you're going. And if you're going by helicopter. Well, you got to transport this big crate out there to the location where you're acquiring the animal, and you're going to need a secondary smaller copter to trank the rhino and carry the capture team. Okay. So, so it's a big operation. 
Yeah, big operation. Any way you shake it. But wildlife teams in Namibia were interested in trying some different methods. They were interested in fine-tuning the chopper tactic as well as expediting the whole process. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, the key advantages, again, of, the, of using a helicopter is that it allows you to move the animal to more remote locations and to, to do so in a faster manner. Um, uh, you, know, you don't have to worry about, well, can a road take me there? And do I have to, how, mm. how far do I have to wind around with this, uh, this, this poor rhino in the trunk? Right. How bumpy is it? Right. Now, one of the things that, that Radcliffe points out and that uh, is pointed out in that Manga Bay article is that translocation efforts have something of a checkered history in the past, and there are a lot of factors to consider. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, you could even consider these uh, Namibia efforts as being kind of a leap of faith. Uh, that well, you know we've we got to do something uh, from a conservation standpoint. Let's try and move the animals to a more secure location, a place where they can they can live. And um, but again, there's a lot of stuff you have to consider, and this paper deals with one of them because to streamline the translocation uh, by helicopter, uh, one of the big things you can do is dispense with that crate and try to get them into the air while they're still under. You know, they're, they're still tranquilized. Let's try and, uh, you know, harness them up in something, carry them in the sky, and make a beeline for wherever we're going. Um, hopefully, the animal never even wakes up. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's going to make it easier, not only on the animal itself, but also on the people that have to do uh, the carrying. Okay, makes sense. So one tactic uh, that has been used is to force a sledge underneath the animal once it's laying on the side. So it's been tranked, it's laying on its side, force a sledge underneath its body, then secure it to the sledge, and you airlift that sledge um, uh, you know, up into the air, take it to another location. I included a, a photograph of what this looks like for you, Joe. Okay, this already looks strange enough. This is a sideways rhino with four feet hanging out over the sky. Yep. Uh, yeah, it looks pretty good. It looks stable. It makes a lot of sense. You see, you see exactly how they got there. But, but Radcliffe... Uh, knew from previous studies that this position for the rhino increases what's known as dead space, the volume of ventilated air that does not participate in gas exchange. An extended time in this position means the animal is getting less out of each breath. Okay, so the rhino is not great at breathing in this position. Right. So this brings us to this n- this new idea this this new way of carrying the rhino uh that was being uh, that's been uh, uh, was uh, that was brought up by a namibian uh, conservationist uh that they brought in radcliffe radcliffe in to uh, uh to study and that is while the the rhino is out you secure all of its legs to a harness and you lift it up into the air in an inverted posture and carry it that way Okay, so we've gone from upright rhino to sideways rhino to completely upside down rhino. You're just doing the 90 degree rotate uh, command repeatedly, right? Um, and you know, and it's it's interesting, right? Because like the, the the rhino normally is standing up, and it could you know it's sometimes going to be on its side, but it's never going to be inverted in the natural world. Like you, this is a new position for the living rhinoceros. Uh, so that's why they wanted to study it. Well, what, what does this do to the rhino's uh, breathing? Um, is, is there anything in, in, you know, essential that we need to know about this before we really roll this out as our chief means of carrying rhinos uh, from one place to another? Okay, well, I, I want to know, does it work? Um, it, the short answer is yes, it does seem to work. Um, now, there's still it still requires a lot of work. That's one thing they really drive home here is that um, – 
you know, you're still going to have to have that second chopper. You're still going to have to have somebody in there to to trank the rhino. It's going to involve a whole team. So it's not like we've perfectly streamlined this to, to something that is not hard. It's still difficult. Um, it's and it's still a stressful situation. Um, but uh, uh, so, but Radcliffe was was mainly looking at breathing with the rhino here. They used a crane instead of a, a chopper, um, and uh, their findings, while not final and all inclusive. And also utilizing a small sample size, they stress, uh, were certainly encouraging. So first of all, you don't encounter that increase of dead air. In fact, it might actually improve oxygen intake, uh, but apparently that's, that's an issue where the, the authors are like, well, we, we didn't have a huge sample size here, so we, we shouldn't put as much emphasis on that aspect of it. Okay, but they at least know that in this small group of animals, hanging upside down was no worse for breathing than lying sideways on a sledge, and it might possibly improve oxygen saturation a little bit, but that's not clear. Right, that seems to be the case. And secondly, while some animals would be worse off being transported in an inverted position— the rhino does really well. And in fact, here's a quote from uh, Valawahara's interview with Radcliffe. This is a quote from Radcliffe. Quote, if you look at the anatomy of the rhino, it has a very heavy, uh, very large neck and head. When you hang them upside down, the head hangs really low. That does two things. It straightens out the spine and it also straightens out the airway. From a strictly anatomical perspective, it's actually an ideal position for a rhino to be in. <laughs> It's an ideal endpoint for rhino evolution. In in a, in a million years, the rhinos will all move around upside down. Yeah, so I, I love that. It's like not only is the upside down rhino um, okay, it is it is in some sense optimal. This is optimal rhinoceros here. Uh, don't some people have contraptions for flipping themselves upside down? For I have no idea if there's anything to this, but for some perceived medical benefit or, or physical yeah. therapy, at least, or something. Yeah, inversions. You, you you do. I feel like this is probably something we'd have to come back to in a, a full episode. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there are some studies about it, and there are certainly a lot of claims about it. Um, both, uh, you know, certainly within, like, say, the yoga community, but also, uh, yeah, you see people who have just uh, advocated being upside down as a um, as, as an effective life choice. Oh, yeah, I mean, not full time, I guess, but no, 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 that'd be interesting to look into. Maybe, maybe we should come back to that. Now, with the rhinos here, there there's more work to be done here, uh, s- such as looking at the circulation of the animal, which I don't think was really a, a focal point of this particular study. But still, it's it's insightful and it's an important study into the effects of transporting uh, these animals by chopper. And conservation groups are already using the same technique with giant sable antelope and with the African elephant. Oh, wow. Yeah. So with an upside-down rhinoceros, this means when it finally gets set down, makes gentle contact with the ground, does it go horn first? Uh, well, they have to be very gentle setting it down. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, then you don't just drop it. Uh, it's, it's like a very, um, a very careful g- game of the, the, the claw machine, right? Right. Uh, I should add that another important note about this is that you can't just have any helicopter do this. Like the the rhino is a very heavy animal. So one of the things that Radcliffe stresses is is that, yeah, you still need two helicopters. You need the smaller helicopter for the Trank team, uh, but you need a a pretty sizable helicopter to actually lift this creature, even if there's no crate involved. Oh, yeah. I bet that's not cheap. No. Okay, here's how to make the image funnier. The upside down rhinoceros dangling from not a helicopter, but a Harrier jet. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I don't like that idea that doesn't sound good some kind of vertical takeoff uh, airplane yeah, yeah. that somehow that doesn't sound like it would work all right well i guess that's it for this episode um 
uh, like we've said before, we're, we're not covering all the winners this, this year, but uh, we just uh, looked at four of them. But if you want to find the rest of them, head on over to the Ig Nobel Prizes website, uh, and they have a full listing of them, along with links to the individual studies. Uh, and also there is a webcast of the ceremony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're usually hijinks of some sort. All love to them, but uh, often some kind of cringy humor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. Uh, In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts, because wherever that is, you'll find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, We run core episodes of the show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Artifact on Wednesdays, uh, Listener Mail on Mondays, and on Fridays we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious considerations and just focus in on a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.